Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 15. There Elijah went into a cave and spent the night. The Lord's word came to him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars and they have murdered your prophets with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they want to take my life too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. For the Lord is passing by. A very strong wind tore through the mountains and broke apart the stones before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound, thin, quiet. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his coat. He went out and stood at the cave's entrance. A voice came to him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? He said, I have been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They have torn down your altars and they have murdered your prophets with the sword. I am the only one left and now they want to take my life too. The Lord said to him, Go back through the desert to Damascus and anoint Hazael as king. Over Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So last week, hopefully this is going to get up there today. Oh, not quite there. I'm glad that I'm not the one in charge of tech, because they know what they're doing, I don't. And they're the ones getting this back up. So thank you, James. Thanks, Regan. All right, so last week uh, we talked about the story in the first part of... One of these days I knew I was going to trip on that and fall. All right, can we just start over again? Like, I'm just going to plant myself here, try not to fall down. Okay, so last week we were in 1 Kings 19, first half of the the book. And so I'm going to do a brief overview in case you weren't here last week, in case you missed it. Okay, here's the brief, brief overview. Elijah wins big. God wins big on Mount Carmel. Elijah goes back. Uh, Ahab goes back to Queen Jezebel. Queen Jezebel sends a note to to Elijah saying, I'm going to make you dead tomorrow. Elijah flees out of Israel into Judah, out of Judah into the wilderness. And there he lays down because he's tired and depressed. An angel of the Lord feeds him. He goes back to sleep. An angel of the Lord feeds him again and says, get up, take, eat, because Otherwise, the journey will be too much. And then Elijah goes and 40 days, 40 nights into the wilderness of Sinai, where he arrives at the foot of Mount Sinai. Okay, That's the, that is the short, short Cliff's Notes version. Uh, last week, I, I encouraged anybody who wanted to, to send me or Sheldon um, a, an emoji uh, version of uh, Jezebel's note to Elijah, which says, may the gods do to me. And worse also, if I don't make you dead by this time tomorrow. Okay, so that's the note. And so here is, here is one of the notes. So you can, you can tell me how, how you think about this. Nicole, was this yours? Yeah, this was Nicole's. It's good. I like it. I didn't know there was a coffin emoji. I, I, not one I've ever sought to use. Um, so there you go. Good. Squirt gun, nice. Next. 
Regan, my clicker's not working. It's a comedy of errors this morning, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes the computer is wacky. Anyway. Okay, so here's another one. This was um, Kayla's brother uh, sent this to us. So there you go. Probably good, true skin tone to those of, of Near Eastern. That's good. I'm, I'm glad. I like it. I think I knew there was a knife emoji, but anyway, that's a fun one. All right, and here's the last one. Okay, it's working now, Regan. This one, I think, Audrey, you sent me this one, right? Yeah. This one is short and sweet, right? Okay, anyway, just for funsies, I just wanted to show you those. Okay, so we know that Elijah has, has fleed out of, out of Israel, out of Judah, and, and into the wilderness in Sinai. So this, this just again, for, for, for map's sake... The, the star at the top is the, kind of the southern end boundary of sort of traditional, the land of, of Israel, right? And so Elijah has gone 40 days, 40 nights into the wilderness, right? Think of other people who were 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. Think of people who were 40 years in the wilderness, right? All this is supposed to recall us to, to Moses, to the Israelites, and he makes his way down to Mount Horeb, which is one way of referring to Mount Sinai, the mountain of the Lord. Right? And, and this should bring up in our minds, if we're conversing with the scriptures, if you know the scriptures, this, this brings up in our minds all sorts of things that happened at Sinai. So, so, so the last thing that we read about in, in scripture happening at Sinai, which is, this is Sinai, is, ah, man, there it is. That's the one I'm looking for, is Moses, right? It is supposed to help us remember what happened with Moses and the Israelites at Sinai. Right? What happened? Israelites camped at Sinai for a significant amount of time. Moses goes up. Moses meets with God, gets the big 10, right? Um, brings them down to the people. They're worshiping idols. He breaks them on the ground and bad things happen. He goes back up, meets with God again. God affirms, reaffirms, commits to the people of Israel. The people of Israel commit to God. Everything is hunky-dory and they travel and ultimately inhabit the land. Right? So we're supposed to recall all of this kind of information that's going through our head when we hear that Elijah has gone back to this place where God had, had made covenants with Israel, where God had been so divinely present, where, where Moses himself had seen God's glory. We're supposed to recall this as we hear that, that, Mo, that Elijah has reached the foot of Mount Sinai. And we're told he kind of makes his way up the mountain and he finds a cave and, and he goes into the cave. Now, the, the, the Hebrew, I won't bore you too much with Hebrew, but it says the cave, not just a cave. So again, we're, I, I think what the author is doing here is trying to help us remember what happened with Moses. He hid in the cleft of a rock, right? He hid in a cave. And as he was hiding in the cave, God covered Moses kind of with his hand and walked by. And Moses beheld the glory of Almighty God. We're supposed to remember this. This is a new kind of meeting at Mount Sinai. And, and as, as Elijah goes there, he kind of camps out and, and God comes to him and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Which is an interesting question when God asks you to be somewhere and you go there and then God says, what are you doing here? But the question is certainly more than rhetorical. Elijah has already in the wilderness, as we, as we saw last week, was, was crying out to God, God, I, I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm no better than the prophets before me. Interestingly enough, now he's in the place where Moses talked with God, right? I, I just want to die. I, I have done nothing. I have accomplished nothing. Just kill me now and things will be better. That's essentially Elijah's prayer. And, and God says, well, go to Sinai. We need to have a chat. And so Elijah goes and God says, okay, now's the time. You've reached the complaints department. What's going on? 
Elijah, why are you here? And it's an interesting story that Elijah tells. In fact, it bears repeating because you might notice that the information Elijah gives God is a little bit different than the actual reality of things. Elijah says, I have been passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces. Okay, that's true. Because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, which is sort of true, but they came back to the covenant on Sinai. They recommitted themselves to God, excuse me, on Mount Carmel. They have torn down your altars, sort of true. And they have murdered your prophets with the sword. Some of them had been. I am the only one left, and now they want to take my life too. So so notice what's different about Elijah's complaint than the reality that we have been presented by the author of 1 Kings. Elijah says the Israelites have done all these things. The Israelites have been bad. There's no doubt about that. But they had come back. Elijah neglects to mention that. That they had reaffirmed their commitments to God because they saw God was powerful. And, And then he says they have torn down your altars, which is technically true as well. But he doesn't mention, again, the reforms that have happened, the things, the way the people had turned around. And then he says, and now they, the Israelites, are trying to kill me. Wait, I thought it was just Jezebel. Notice how those two stories differ. Now, let's be fair to Elijah. When things are bad for you, do you really have an objective assessment on the situation? No. Someone was trying to kill him. Someone very, very powerful. He had a right in many ways to be scared, to be concerned. Many things had happened. It it may have felt like things were hopeless. Uh, Elijah does what many of us do when things are bad, when we're in situations of trial, of struggle, of pain, of darkness. We get tunnel vision. It's hard to see the whole. It's just my illness. It's just my problem. And again, I'm not blaming that. That is human nature. That's probably survival instinct. When we're threatened, everything comes tunnel vision, and it's just about relieving the threat. And so that's where Elijah is. He doesn't have an objective assessment of the situation. He doesn't really see what's going on. He can only see the bad. He can only see how how the, the group of people who's trying to kill him, and there were some trying to kill him, that group becomes everybody. We make generalizations when we're scared. Everyone's out to get me. So Elijah brings this complaint to God. God, again, it's the same thing in the wilderness, though. I'm done. I can't handle it anymore. Nothing has changed. Nothing has gotten better. They're still trying to kill me, and I am the only one left. Now, we also know that this is not true. Elijah has had a part in helping Obadiah hide prophets of Yahweh. But things are bad for him. Got tunnel vision. Hard to remember the salient details sometimes when we're suffering. Elijah is in a bad place. I've been in a bad place. In fact, I think I've been roughly where Elijah is. Why would I go on? I can't, nothing's getting better. Nobody cares. Everything's bad and nobody loves you, Jesus. It's only me, right? I think some of us have been there. Or when we're sick or when there's a trial, there's something traumatic going on in our lives, right? We just, I'm the only one. I just don't want to go on. It's too much. It's too much to handle. I can't see anything good in the outside world. Everything's bad. We know objectively that's not true, but it doesn't feel that way to us sometimes. That's where Elijah is. 
And what I find most interesting is God does not immediately rebuke this in Elijah. God doesn't immediately say, you know, snap out of it, dude. Right? Just stop. God doesn't say that. God doesn't rebuke Elijah. God doesn't correct Elijah. God doesn't immediately at least kind of pull out the actual record and say, well, let, let's go back to the conversations here. Like, everybody's against you, Elijah. That's, you know. God hears Elijah's complaint. God hears him out. God listens and at this point makes no really judgments, at least to Elijah, and merely says, Elijah, go out of the cave because I'm coming by. Right, right. So, so God sees Elijah's situation, sees his depression, and, and knows that a lecture is not going to help. Again, you know, as a parent, I often think a lecture is going to help, and a lecture doesn't help. Right? Um, ask my kids sometime. A lecture doesn't help, generally speaking. God knows at this point a lecture is not going to do it. That's not what Elijah needs. Elijah needs presence. Elijah needs to know he's not alone. And though he's having a conversation with God, God basically says, look where you are. You're on Sinai. You're in the cave. I'm coming. Get ready. And then we have one of the most, in my opinion, vivid sort of descriptions of of things going on here at at Sinai, which I I found very compelling and and very interesting. So we're, we're told about kind of three natural things that occur. So the first we're told, and that's Moses, the first thing we're told that happens is that a wind came by. So this is not like a breeze. This is not a soft summer breeze off the Columbia, right? This is gale force, hurricane, rock breaking, earth moving wind. I don't know if you've ever been in a tornado or in those high wind situations where you're just afraid the roof's going to come off. This is probably how Elijah is feeling, right? The the wind is just ripping through and, and you can imagine the sound like a freight train and rocks cracking and tumbling all around him. It is chaotic. It is powerful. It is amazing. But what is interesting is we're told by the author of first Kings that God was not in the wind, which is not to say that God wasn't coming. It's just a way of saying this is not equal to God. And then we're told that an earthquake came. You'd be surprised how hard it is to find a picture of a seismograph. But anyway, an earthquake came. And and, and kind of like that that feeling of the strong wind where you're afraid the roof's going to come off at any moment where you just don't feel safe. Earthquakes make you feel very unsafe because the very structures you're in are moving and shaking. The ground beneath your feet is not stable. And that is a scary place to be. That is a a tremendously unnerving experience, especially when they're big earthquakes. Small ones are kind of fun. Big ones are not. And you can imagine, here he is in this rock cave, and the earth starts shaking. Nothing around him is firm. Is, nothing around him is stable. There's nothing to hold on to, to get your bearings, to get your balance. The whole earth is moving. It's a scary feeling. It's a powerful feeling. But again, the author of First Kings says that God was not the earthquake, not in the earthquake. And then we're told about fire. Fire comes through at the, the top of Mount Sinai. There's not vegetation on it. So it's, it's got to be any, it's got to be divine fire. But you can imagine this conflagration, this fire, this just immense furnace heat burning outside of this cave as, as God is kind of coming around and, and, and just going up in flames and the rocks and it's scorching and it's loud and it's burning and it creates its own wind and there's heat and all that stuff. And then we're told once again, God was not in the fire. Hello.
darkness, my old friend. That's not the silence that came next. <laughs> Sorry. Some of you got that, some of you didn't. It's the sounds of silence by Simon and Garfunkel. Okay, sorry. Hit and a miss, swing and a miss, right? Um, anyway, what came next was what we're told as a sound of sheer silence or an extreme quiet or absolute silence. Now, I don't know if you've ever had absolute silence. I mean, it's really hard in our day and age to have absolute silence, like just nothing going on. Sometimes mountaintops are a place where you can experience that. Especially if you think about the loudness of the wind and the, and the rumbling of the earthquake and then the, just the roar of the fire and, and all of this is going on and things are just chaotic and, and stormy and loud and, and bombastic and all that stuff going on and all of a sudden it all just stops. And it's quiet. Sometimes the lack of sound can be more unnerving than the sound itself. And we're not sure what exactly is going on here. We often talk about God being heard in a still small voice, the faint whisper. It is worthy to note that while we are told about the silence and that Elijah emerges from the cave in the silence, we're not told that God was in the silence either. Fire, smoke, none of that stuff can be equated with God. They all may be signs that God is drawing near. Last time Elijah, or someone was on Sinai, there was smoke, there was fire, there was thunder. And that's how the people knew that something was going on on the top of the mountain. But here, God passes by and these things happen perhaps as a way of getting Elijah's attention. And maybe the best way to get Elijah's attention or our attention for that matter in a time and a place where sound is so just all around us. We have means nowadays like no other to have noise all the time. Right? If I, if I try to come here during the day and just find a place silent, even at this church to pray, it's impossible. Because if you're quiet around here long enough, you hear cars going by. You, you can hear the beep of the crosswalks out front. But it's hard to disassociate, get out of silence. And, and silence, absolute silence, like getting into nature, and even that's not absolute silence, is unnerving. Because the lack of input. And I think all of this is meant to tell us that, that all of these things are signals that God could be near. And so Elijah, when he, for lack of a better way of saying it, hears the silence. We're told he wraps his mantle around his face. You don't want to go and see God with unveiled face. And he goes out and he stands on the mountaintop. This is... This is what I envision in my mind, Elijah is seeing after all of that, just sort of a quiet sunset. And once again, he meets with God. And once again, God says, Elijah, why are you here? Same question. Same answer. Again, it's interesting to note that Elijah's opinion of the situation, no matter the presence, the loud noise, the crack of thunder, the whatever, he feels the same way. God, I've been zealous for you. The people have abandoned your covenant, and that kills me. 
They have torn down altars to you, places that are meant to signify your presence. God, they have killed all of your prophets, and I alone am left. It's me, and I'm not enough. And perhaps no truer statement is ever made, right? He says, I'm, I'm not enough. I, I can't do it. I, I, I can't carry on like this. I, I can't handle going on when things are so crazy and so out of sorts and so just wrong. God, I can't. There's too much pain for me to go on. God, I don't see any reason to. And it's this point that God doesn't give a lecture still. See, God recognizes the tunnel vision that Elijah has. I can only see what's in front of me. I can only see the threat. I can only see the cancer. I can only see this, that, or the other thing. God recognizes that. God does not rebuke that. God made us. God knows how we react to stress, to pain, to heartache. God knows these things happen. But, but what God does do, instead of giving a lecture, instead of all sorts of pointing out how Elijah is wrong, that does come in just a couple of verses. But, but the first thing God does is say, get up. There's still work to be done. God kind of broadens the picture a little bit for Elijah. God says, I I want you to open the aperture a little bit to see a little bit more that's going on. Here's what I'm doing. Elijah, now I want you to go and anoint Hazel, king of Damascus, and Jehu, king of Israel. And I want you to go, ultimately he says, I want you to go and to anoint Elisha as your successor. See, see for a moment kind of all how these things are, Elijah's complaints are going on. Elijah's complaining. He's sad. He, he's just filling out the form, right? But, but God says to him, guess what? There's more to be accomplished. And, and if you thought things were over on Carmel, they weren't. That was not the decisive thing. I showed up. Yes. People turned back to me. Yes. But guess what? That's not all there is to be done. It's not magic. It won't change in a moment. Your feelings may not change overnight, but Elijah, guess what? There is still more to be done. The picture I have is a little bit broader than what you're seeing. Elijah, see the wider picture. Right? Go and anoint this foreign king, oddly enough, as king over Damascus, the Arameans, the enemies of the people of Israel. Go and anoint a new king over Israel. Good news. Elijah because the old king and queen are trying to kill him. But calamity has befallen them as well, or will. And then he says, guess what? You are not the last. You are not the only one. You are not the, the one who everything ends with. It doesn't end when you die, Elijah. Guess what? I need you to anoint your successor because this continues on. God doesn't lecture Elijah. God gives Elijah work to do. In his depression, in his darkness, as sometimes happens and is helpful when we have work to do, it helps us come out to see a little bit wider. Is it a panacea? Does it solve everything? Certainly not. At this point, Elijah's still in danger. Right? If not from Jezebel, there are enemies aplenty. But God says, I have work for you to do. Go and do this work that is meaningful, that is good, that is my work. 
and perhaps come out of your funk just a little bit. Perhaps have meaning given to this darkness that you feel that you are in. You are not alone. And ultimately, that's what God says. To, to, to Elijah's complaint, I alone am left. I'm the only one faithful. I have not bowed to Baal. I have not kissed his ring. I alone among all of the people have been true to you. God says, Elijah, you're a great man, but that's a little grandiose. There are 7,000 yet in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's a remnant. God always preserves a remnant. Elijah says, I alone am faithful. And God says, no, that's not entirely true. There are others. There are, you have a support group. There are others who are going through, who are suffering, who are feeling the, the danger of, of Jezebel, who are feeling the danger of Ahab, right? There are others who are suffering as you are suffering. And like you, they need to be about their work. And so God sends Elijah down the mountain. Better? I don't know. It's funny, we don't hear about Elijah's mental state at any point beyond this. We don't know. But we do know he has purpose. God has given him something to do. God has shown him a bigger picture than he was able to see in his darkness and in his despair. Widens the vision just a little bit to say, this is what's next. This is what's good. You are and you can be faithful. You are and can be persevering in the midst of this darkness and of this pain. Gives him something to do. It's interesting for me when I think about this text in reference to some New Testament texts. Think about how the disciples were feeling about day two, even on the morning of day three after Jesus was crucified. They have just seen the one in whom they had placed all of their hope crucified. And they have no reference for a Messiah who dies. That was not a reference point anyone in Israel had at that point, or at least considered. So they're sitting in a room basically saying, what in the world are we supposed to do now? We're told that they are cowering in fear. If they came for Jesus, we're next. Perhaps they had some of this, we alone are left, thinking in their minds. The people have abandoned the covenant. They've killed the Messiah. They've killed the Holy One of God. I would imagine they were in a very similar space to where Elijah is in right here. No hope for future. No way of seeing what's next. No way of understanding what's next. And yet in the midst of that, right, they're gathered together as we hear in the resurrection accounts and news comes to them, Christ is risen. Even then they don't believe it. Tunnel vision, it's hard to see a grand picture. It's hard to get out of, of the tunnel vision, me and my survival there. Even after they hear the news, even after Peter and John go to the, to the tomb and say, hey, he's alive or he's at least not there, we still find them back huddled together for fear of reprisal. For they're followers of Jesus. And it's only in the midst of that when Jesus pops in, literally, he appears in their midst 
And only after they get their minds around that and he shows them some things and eats some bread in one instance, do they finally get it. He's alive, right? The, the vision is broad. That, that God's vision, that God's plan, that God's history of things is much, much bigger than, than we are able to conceive in our best of times, let alone when they're in the midst of depression, of darkness, of pain. But in the midst of that, God comes and says, let me show you a little bit wider vision. Jesus even meets the two guys who are walking to a different town, who are despondent, who are saying, we're out, we're done, we thought things were going to be good, but now we're just going back home trying to figure out what to do. And Jesus walks beside him and says, this is why it was necessary for the Messiah to die. And even then, they don't get it. It's not until he sits down and he breaks bread with them, and they're like, oh, that was him. And then he disappears, and they're like, well, let's run back and tell everyone else. And, and even after the resurrection appearances, let, let's, let's be honest, the disciples don't know what to do. Right? They're, they're not kind of in the depth of their depression, but they're still like, what are we supposed to do now? They're hanging out with Jesus. Jesus, is now the time? Are you going to bring in the armies? Are we going to conquer Rome? What's going to happen? Even then, they don't have the whole picture. Even then, things aren't miraculously all better. But they have the next step, a way to move forward. For they are assured, just as Elijah was, that God is not done no matter how bleak things get and seem and feel. So I'm not entirely sure where all of you are right now. I know there's some who may be listening to this who are in a very, very dark place. They might be saying to God, God, we have been faithful. Where are you now? In the midst of this pain, in the midst of this sorrow, in the midst of this frustration, whatever it may be, God, where are you? We're alone. You've left us. That's what it feels like we're in the darkness. The witness of this text and the text, many texts like it, is that God has not left the building. It may seem like that. I've been there feeling that way. God has left the building. God, why go on? But it's in those times where sometimes God speaks from a ray in the sky, but more often in a quiet time in a small way to say, I am with you. And there's more to the story and there's more to your story. I'm not done with you. I have not left you. And there's still steps to be walked. Those steps, for some are many, for some are few. But in each of those instances, in every case, whatever steps we take, God has said, I will be with you. And I know that's hard to hear in times of sorrow. I know it. And sometimes it takes someone else reminding us. Sometimes it, it takes hearing it over and over and over again. Sometimes it takes on being on the other side of whatever it is that we say, God was there. Right? Those footsteps are God carrying me or those heel marks are God dragging me, whatever it might be, right? Sometimes it takes being on the other side and, and that's hard but God hasn't left the building. He hasn't left you. God hasn't abandoned God's church. 
though it feels like it sometimes. God comes to us in those moments of sorrow and of pain and says, I know it's hard. But here's a little bit of the bigger picture. You are suffering, no doubt, but there are others who are with you. There are others who have not abandoned you or abandoned me. And so let's keep walking together, next step, whatever it may be. We may not have anything as grand as anointing the next king of Israel. Currently no king of Israel, so that's okay. But there's a next step. There's a wider vision. Even in the depths of our despair, like the disciples were, like Elijah was, God says, there is more. I am with you. You're in this place. And as you go to do the work you have been called to do. This morning, I'd just like to take, as Renal and Mark come back up, just a couple of moments in quiet. To listen, perhaps, for the voice of the Spirit in the quiet. I encourage you, whatever you're feeling, it may be joy and it may be pain, it may, you may feel abandoned. I encourage you to tell God about it. God wants to know. The question, why are you here, is not an accusation, it is an invitation. It's an invitation because God cares. In the midst of it all, God, God wasn't like, oh, well, Elijah, I need you to do this stuff. God was like, I care about you, Elijah. I want to know what's going on, and I want to be here to help. God came to Elijah on Sinai, not because Elijah was a tool, but because Elijah was a person in relationship with God, just as we are people in relationship with God. And so before we sing the final song, let's just take a couple moments in silence and quiet. Tell God why you're here, what you're feeling. Allow God to speak, even if it's just to say, yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil because I am with you. Breathe in death is not the final word. Let's listen. Let's speak to God. Lord God, throughout the history of your people, there have been times of pain and of sorrow. 
Lord, your people have suffered. Your prophets have suffered. Your son suffered. And Lord, we can't pretend that a sermon will make it all better. We can't pretend that there's some magic pill in the midst of suffering to take and that will just make everything all right again. But God, I pray that wherever people are today, that you might remind them in a very real and tangible way that you are there. That suffering is never the end of the story with the people of God. Lord, that there is even life beyond the suffering of this life. Lord, I pray that there might be in some, in these instances where people are suffering, Lord, comfort in knowing that you are there. And knowing that our hope is not temporal or fleeting, but that our hope is in you. Lord, I pray that we might have the power to accept that we may not see the whole picture. But to know deeply that you do. And Lord, that you are with us in the midst, even though we walk the valley of the shadow of death. So Lord, as we sing this final song and as we proclaim your goodness, Lord, we do so as an act of faith. Proclaiming that even when we cannot see, we will proclaim your goodness and your faithfulness and the power of your presence in our midst.